Hosea is a stunning, if difficult, prophetic book set within a time of severe political turmoil in 8th century Israel. Kings are dying, alliances are being formed, a showdown with the Assyrian Empire is imminent, and within this historical reality, the people of Israel have become rebellious and unfaithful. They have even included worship of other gods into their normal routines. All of this informs the well-known image of Hosea's marriage to an unfaithful wife, Gomer, and the birth of their kids. Much like his own family, the book of Hosea tells a one-sided love story of a God who, despite all evidence to the contrary, will not give up on his people. Join us as we explore the depth and radical faithfulness of a God who won't let go in the book of Hosea. So we are going to be continuing our study tonight in the book of Hosea. We're going to be bouncing around between Hosea chapter 5 and into chapter 6. You'll notice that we're not necessarily going through the book of Hosea from chapter 1 all the way uh, through the end of the book. But especially from here on out, we're going to be bouncing around a little bit and taking some of Hosea's prophetic words. We've moved away from that introductory story where we meet Hosea and his wife Gomer and their kids and all of the difficulties and problems that their relationship seems to demonstrate. We're moving away from that prophetic sign act where their marriage and their relationship demonstrates a truth about God's people, namely that they, like Hosea's wife, are going away from God and and turning after idols and other false gods, and they are going... uh, in their own ways, I guess you could say. Now we're moving more into a standard prophetic ministry where Hosea is ministering to the people, addressing their needs. And this is really important because for a lot of us, as we think about prophetic ministry, we think about the prophets showing up and looking into the distant future saying, these things are going to happen somewhere out there, especially for Christians, what we like to do is see those prophetic texts that are prophesying about Jesus who would show up on the scene some 700 or 600 or 500 years later, but we miss the fact that oftentimes these prophets are dealing with issues in their specific moment in time. Think, if you would, of prophets as preachers who are going to address a people dealing with certain issues as they are experiencing them currently. So we're going to dive into Hosea chapter 5, and I'm not really expecting, and this has nothing to do with your intellectual capabilities, this has nothing to do with your um, literacy with regard to ancient Near Eastern prophetic literature, but I am banking on the fact that these words on the screen might not mean a lot to you the first time we read through them. A lot of times as Christians, as we approach our Bible, there's a lot of background information that we need to gain in order for these texts to make sense for us. So if you're kind of following along and you're hearing the words, but you're not really understanding what's going on, that's fine. Because I will attempt to walk you through this after um, setting a little bit of the groundwork for us here. This is Hosea chapter 5. The prophet begins. Blow a horn in Gibeah. Blow a trumpet in Ramah. Sound the warning in beth Look behind you, Benjamin. Ephraim will become a horrible place on the judgment day. Against the tribes of Israel, I will certainly announce what is to take place. The princes of Judah act like raiders who steal the land. 
I will pour out my anger like water upon them. Ephraim is under pressure from its enemies. Ephraim's rights aren't protected. This is because Ephraim chose to pursue worthless things. Therefore, I am like a moth to Ephraim and like decay to the house of Judah. When Ephraim saw his sickness and Judah his wound, then Ephraim went to Assyria and Ephraim sent for the great king, but he could not heal them nor could he cure their wound. I am like a lion to Ephraim, like a young lion to the house of Judah. I am the one who tears the prey and goes forth. No one can snatch it from me. I will leave so that I can return to my place until they pay for their deeds, until they seek me. In their distress, they will beg for my favor. Come, let's return to the Lord For it is he who has injured us and will heal us. He has struck us down, but he will bind us up. After two days, he will revive us. On the third day, he will raise us up so that we may live before him. Let's know. Let's press on to know the Lord, whose appearing is as certain as the dawn, who will come to us like the showers, like the spring rains that give drink to the earth. Ephraim, what will I do with you? Judah, what will I do with you? Your love is like a morning cloud, like the dew that vanishes quickly. Therefore, I have attacked them by the prophets. I have killed them by the words of my mouth, and my judgment goes forth like a light. I desire faithful love and not sacrifice. The knowledge of God instead of entirely burned offerings. The word of God for the people of God. So I'm imagining that that first time through, there's a lot of words, there's a lot of places, there's a lot of things. And for many of us, even for the people that have spent a large amount of time in the church, it might not really compute what's going on. At least we're picking up on the fact that somebody's angry. Somebody has done something wrong. Ephraim is said a lot, even though oftentimes we don't really know what Ephraim is or who Ephraim is. One scholar says this, when we moderns read the scripture, we are tempted to divest it of its historical context and to turn it into timeless truths and principles. The result is that we deny the basic testimony of the scripture and therefore its actual revelation, namely that God has acted in human history in particular times and places in relation to specific nations and persons, so says Elizabeth Octemeyer in her commentary on Hosea and certain other minor prophets. What we tend to do is we take scripture out of the pages and immediately apply it to our own context with little to no regard for the historical context in which those texts are set. Now I know that after five and a half years of our work here and me ranting and raving like a madman, talking about historical background and context, that the people of TRP, the fine people of TRP, are slow to take a passage out of its context and immediately apply it to their lives. However, we see evidence of this all over society, 
When you go to your grandmother's house and you see that, that verse that's crocheted on a pillow, or you see that person walking down the sidewalk with that Bible verse slapped onto their t-shirt, or, or you see that, that morning coffee mug and you're just sipping on it and it's got the eagles flying and some, some text from Isaiah about you know the, the eagles flying and we will rise up on the wings of the eagles and things like that. We see people taking scripture out of context. And a lot of times we do this as well. And when we do, we forsake the fact that God is addressing his people in a specific moment for a specific purpose to convey a specific point to his people. And this is really important because God continues to do that to us today continues to speak and continues to reveal. But we see evidence of this um, abuse of the Bible for lack of a better word. One example in common parlance of our time over the last couple weeks, if you've been watching the news, and I know that some of you are sitting here saying, don't do it to me. Don't you go there, Josh James. Do not take me political. Well, I'm taking you political a little bit, and we're going to go away from what Jeff Sessions, the Attorney General of the United States of America, is attempting to argue, and just look at the way that he is citing Romans chapter 13, verse 1, which says this, for all of you that don't know, let every person be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God, and those authorities that exist have been instituted by God. So says the governing authority. The person in power that's using the scripture in order to back up what it is that the governing bodies are attempting to do. Now, the only thing I want to make clear about this use of Scripture is it doesn't seem to take into account the larger context of Romans chapter 12 and through chapter 13, which is couched in images of renewing our mind and being countercultural and being people of love and justice. In fact, right before this text that has been used, Paul writes, let love be genuine, hate what is evil, hold fast to what is good, love one another with mutual affection, outdo one another in showing honor. Right after this passage about submitting to the governing authorities, it also attempts to, to bring this full circle. It says, owe no one anything except to love one another. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. Love your neighbor as yourself. We see here that people, politicians, pastors, whoever, a lot of times it will be easy to take a text to extract it from its context and use it in a way that might not be appropriate in our time. One scholar says in response to that, he says, whatever Romans 13, 1 through 7 means, and I think regardless of our political affiliations, this is something that we can all get on board with here, and this is really my main point in using this um, controversial image here. Whatever Romans 13, 1 through 7 means, it can only mean what it means in light of its context. That is, it cannot be ripped from its context in the letter to the Romans. It's important to be reading the Bible in context. Hosea chapter 5 through 6 has a historical context. 
When we first meet Hosea, it seems as though he is operating within this this time of rest and this time of progress in Israel where Jeroboam too is reigning and ruling. And this is a time where things are going pretty well in the book of Hosea. However, as we see Hosea's ministry going further, there's a lot of things that are happening underneath of the surface. And in Hosea's chapter 5 and 6, the context that we have that's informing the words of the prophet is known as the Syro-Ephraimite War. Say Syro-Ephraimite War. I cannot tell you how many sermons I've heard on the Syro-Ephraimite War. You? It's a pretty common trope in the evangelical church. There's a lot of great application here, people. I will say this, pause. This whole week, as I was thinking about this passage, like, um, I know that when you guys come to church, that some of you are hurting, that some of you are broken, that some of you are, are wrestling with some of life's biggest issues. Some of you have faced death. Some of you have faced um, a, a difficulty in relationships. Some of you are thinking about joblessness or financial issues. There's a lot of things that are going on in your life. And sometimes the bad news about preaching through a Bible is we don't necessarily get to address all those things. My hope tonight is that we can put some of this stuff in our back pocket and use it when we need it. Okay? So here, as we're thinking about the Syro-Ephraimite War and all of the many different sermons that you have heard on this, I hope that we can just move past that. This is a time of political unrest and imminent danger in the nation of Israel. Now, just to help us all get our bearings, remember that the nation of Israel used to be a united monarchy. They had one king, and Israel and Judah was one people with one king that was reigning and ruling. They had one central place of worship. They, had, they, had, they were one. However, at some point in their history around 922 BC, the kingdom was divided into two different political entities with two different kings, with two different modes of worship, with two different armies, even if you want to go that far. We have two different kingdoms, Israel in the north and Judah in the south. And our main man, Hosea, is dealing with Israel in the north, talking about their political structures, talking about their alliances, talking about what it is that they are attempting to do and the pressures that they as a people are facing. We have Israel in the north and Judah in the south. And I just want to throw some dates at you to show you how tumultuous this time was. When Jeroboam II was reigning in Israel, things were great. Things were, were fine. There was progress that was being made. People, you know, they were just living their lives. However, once Jeroboam II died, things begin to unravel. And just note the dates here. In 749, Zechariah, who is Jeroboam II's son, is assassinated six months after taking office. So these people have buried a king They've mourned a king. They've installed the son of that king. And then within six months, the son of that king is killed by an assassin who then subverts himself onto the throne. One month later, Shalom, who is the person who kills Zechariah, is killed by a guy named Menahem. 
So still, within, within the, the whole scope of about seven months, we've buried a king, we've mourned a king, we've installed that king's son. Six months later, that king's son is now assassinated. We've buried him, we've mourned him. One month later, the king who assassinated the king prior to is assassinated. So we've had all of these different kings reigning and ruling, and we see Menahem, who, who reigns for a handful of years, at, at least giving us some stability in the land of Israel. It's around this time as well when a guy named Tiglath-Pileser III, you've got to say Tiglath-Pileser III, it's so good. Oh, it's so good, isn't it? The main mamma-jamma of the Neo-Assyrian Empire who is reigning and ruling. There's all kinds of things that are going on here. We talk often about siege engines. Yes, I said that as a pastor to a congregation in the local church. We talk often about siege engines. That is something that most people cannot say, but let's just revel in that for a moment. The Neo-Assyrian Empire, led by Tiglath-Pileser III, was moving on the warpath to take over these smaller countries, and they were attempting to dominate the entire world. And they were making pretty good headway on this. Under his leadership, you can see uh, the, I believe that's red, this area here, the Neo-Assyrian Empire that's, that's moving and growing and expanding. And down here, we've got little bitty old, old Judah and Israel here that are functioning as tributary states, meaning they had no chance whatsoever to do anything with TP3 and the Neo-Assyrian Empire. Not one chance. When I was a kid, I played Little League, and I'm from Laurel, Delaware. All my Laurel, Delaware people represent. It's me and my family, all right? <laughs> and we were the small country bumpkins. I grew up on a pig farm, and we are from slower, lower Delaware. If you've ever said that, get out of here. I reject that, okay? Because upstate, it's not about the slow, leisurely pace of life. They use that to say that we are all stupid, okay? But as a baseball player, small little old Laurel, Delaware would usually do pretty well in the All-Stars, but whenever we would go to face a team from Northern Delaware, and Delaware is small, okay? I don't, wanna, I don't wanna paint the picture here like this is a thriving metropolis where everybody is super excited about Delaware, but whenever we would face a team from Northern Delaware, you could tell there was a gap between what we were able to accomplish and what the massive kids from Northern Delaware could do. One year as a 12-year-old playing in a state championship game, and I kid you not, that pitcher was probably 6'2", 240. 12 years old. He ended up getting drafted by the Tigers, okay? We had no chance. We lost 15 to one. In between innings, they would play Cotton Eye Joe just to mess with us. You know, it was, it was that sort of a deal. We had no chance whatsoever. This is like Israel and Judah. They have no chance against the Neo-Assyrian Empire led by Tiglath-Pileser III. And you have to understand, when you're reading your text, these things are on the periphery. People are not just talking about sacrifice and following God. They're also talking about the people out there who could destroy them at the drop of a hat. 
the punishment that God could rain down on them through his instruments, such as TP3 and other world leaders. The Neo-Assyrian Empire is growing and it's moving. So we've got Menahem on the throne who has come to power by assassinating Shalom, who killed Zechariah, who was Jeroboam, the second son, all within the scope of a few years. And Menahem decides, hey, if we're going to make it, I've got to start paying tribute to TP3. Because if we're playing, you know, some war games here, we're going to get destroyed. The only way for us to function is to be a tributary state where we give money to the powers that be and hope that they just don't decide to, to remove us all from office. Later, we see the reign of uh, Pekahiah, who is Menahem's son. There's a transition of power. and He reigns for two years. And then he's assassinated by a guy named Pekah. There's a lot of really difficult stuff in the Old Testament. Side note, this is just for nerds, about chronologies and things. We'll see some of that as we, as we go here. But having Pekahiah and Pekah having similar names, folks are, are not quite sure if it's meant to be the same person or different people and how to talk about how many years they each reigned. Back over here. So Pekahiah is killed by a guy named Pekah. And this is when we see the world stage start to come into focus. In the north, Pekah looks around and says, you know what? I don't want to pay TP3 any money. Get out of my face. This is our money. I'm not going to give TP3 anything. He's way over there destroying those people over there. You know what we should do instead? We should partner up with Rezin, the king of Damascus in Aram. We should, we should partner up and create, catch it, an anti-Assyrian coalition. Israel in the north is starting to wheel and deal and put things into place, trying to move against the powers that be. And Rezin and Pekah, they know that they can't do it alone. So they go down into the south and they try to convince the king of Judah at the time to join their coalition. At the time, this was Jotham, and Jotham was saying, no way, Jose, I am not on board with this. I don't want to have anything to do whatsoever with the Neo-Assyrian Empire. TP3 will destroy us like little bugs. No thank you. And they try to stave off this, uh, this movement of resin in Damascus, which is right uh, in, north of Israel, and Pekah, who is the king of Israel. And this leads us into the Syro-Ephraimite War. As you, got, you knew, you knew that. I know this is just all one big review for you. But we have these, these pressure groups that are moving upon Judah, trying to get them to, to join their coalition. And what happens is Israel and Aram, or Damascus, are in cahoots, and they start to have a war against Judah. So you've got Neo-Assyrian Empire on the, on the outskirts destroying everybody, and then Israel starts to go to war against Judah. 2 Kings chapter 16, it says, Ahaz, Jotham's son, became king of Judah in the 17th year of Pekah. Note, there's some difficulties there with that 17th year of Pekah. 
uh, who's Remaliah's son. Ahaz was 20 years old when he became king and he ruled for 16 years in Jerusalem. He didn't do what was right in the Lord's eyes, unlike his ancestor David. Whenever we meet a king, this is the sort of language that we get. Either they did right in the eyes of the Lord and followed David, or they did not do right in the eyes of the Lord. Instead, Ahaz, he walked in the ways of Israel's kings. He even burned his own son alive, imitating the detestable practices of the nations that the Lord had driven out before the Israelites. He also sacrificed and burned incense at the shrines on every hill and beneath every shady tree. If you were with me a few weeks ago, do you remember what we're talking about? Four of you. I appreciate all four of you. This is like a, uh, a note toward pagan worship and, and dedicating or sacrificing things to the goddess Asherah. Then Aram's king Rezin and Israel's king Pekah, Remaliah's son, came up to Jerusalem to fight. They surrounded Ahaz, but they weren't able to defeat him. At that time, Aram's king Rezin recovered Elath for the Arameans, driving the Judeans out of Elath. The Edomites came to Elath and settled there, and that's still the case now, blah, blah, blah. Ahaz sent messengers to Assyria's king. Tiglath-Pileser, saying, I'm your servant and your son. Come up and save me from the power of the kings of Aram and Israel. Aram and Israel in cahoots now forcing or trying to force Judah to get into this anti-Assyrian coalition. And what does Judah do? They don't look north and join the coalition. They say, no way. What we're going to do instead is we're going to pay tribute to TP3 because we've seen the kind of uh, carnage that he can create with his war siege engines. We know what can happen. So instead, we're going to call on him to help bail us out and we can go to war against our own people. Ahaz took the silver and the gold that was in the Lord's temple and in the palace treasuries and sent a gift to Assyria's king. The Assyrian king heard the request and marched against Damascus. He captured it and sent its citizens into exile to Kir. He also killed Rezin, the king. So we have this Syro-Ephraimite war that's the backdrop for what's happening. We have TP3 who's on a military campaign attempting to expand his, his, uh, his empire. Eventually what happens is uh, Pekah is assassinated by a guy named Hoshea, and he is confirmed as king by TP3, and eventually Israel is destroyed by the Assyrian empire. And all of this is the background for Hosea 5 and 6. Let us pray. <laughs> Not quite. There's a lot of stuff that's happening here in the background. It's a big fat mess because there's things that are going on outside of the text that we may or may not know about that's informing what Hosea the prophet is preaching to his people. We've got an internal struggle between Judah and Israel. We've got Israel in cahoots with Aram or Damascus attempting to go against the Assyrian Empire. We've got all of this stuff that's happening. And the Syro-Ephraimite War provides the background for what we have read in Hosea chapter 5 and chapter 6. Now, remember, I hope this works, remember how potentially clueless we were together reading these words the first time through. 
And now, in light of all of this background, let's go back through, and I'll try to point out some things that will make at least clear what Hosea is, is looking to address here in this text. Blow a horn in Gibeah, he says. Now remember, Hosea is in the north, and he starts to identify towns in the north. He says, blow a horn in Gibeah, blow a trumpet in Ramah, sound the warning at Beth-Avon. Beth-Avon is like a dig at a town named Bethel. Bethel in Hebrew is pronounced Beit-El, which means house of God. Beit-Avain is a word that means house of iniquity. And what Hosea is now doing is saying, blow a trumpet in Gibeah, blow a trumpet in Ramah, sound the warning in Bethel or Beth-Avon. You're not a house of God, you're a house of iniquity. Look behind you, Benjamin. Literally, it says, after you, Benjamin. There's, in a sense, people coming after you. Now, look at a map here real quick. We've got Judah on the bottom. We've got Benjamin, which is the tribe, right immediately to the north. And we have the towns of Gibeah. Um, Ramah is probably where the N in Benjamin is, and then Bethel or Beth-Avon is at the top, and Judah is beginning to invade this town because TP3 has cleared the way. And when TP3 clears the way, Judah says, <laughs> we can expand our territory. And they start sneaking around, trying to take care of Benjamin. And as we'll see, they're doing things that are completely inappropriate. But they're going up from the south to the north through Gibeah, Ramah, into Bethel or Beth-Avon. Ephraim, which we hear throughout this text. Ephraim is a code word for Israel, okay? Now we're clicking. That makes a lot more sense. Hosea is addressing the people in the north saying, Ephraim or Israel, you will become a horrible place on the judgment day. Against the tribes of Israel, I will certainly announce what is to take place. God is ticked because Israel has attempted to put themselves in a coalition with other people and gone to war against Judah, their own brothers and sisters, in an attempt to solidify their own kingdom without seemingly ever asking God to show up for them. Verse 10, the princes of Judah, they act like raiders. Remember, TP3 has cleared the way and they're sneaking around. They're sneaking around like raiders, and what they're doing is they steal the land, or you could phrase it like this, they remove the landmarks. We don't know what that means, and we don't really care, right? But in Deuteronomy, it says, you do not move the landmarks. Why? Because God has given you this land, and God has apportioned it for your tribes and for your families. And if you have somebody who's moving a property stone, attempting to make their land bigger, then you are disrespecting God. And Judah, in their sneakiness, is moving the landmarks, moving the property lines so that they can expand their own territory and take over some of this land and thereby breaking Old Testament law. Lost my clicker. The princes of Judah, they act like raiders. They're stealing the land or they're removing the landmarks. And God says, I will pour out my anger like water upon them. Ephraim or Israel is under pressure from its enemies. 
Ephraim's rights aren't protected. And this is because Ephraim chose to pursue worthless things. Another way to say that is Israel has chosen to put themselves in league with Aram, with Damascus, putting pressure on Judah. They have gone after worthless things to make their empire okay, if we can call it an empire. It's like Southern Delaware trying to play baseball. You know what I mean? If we can even say that, what's happening here is Ephraim is choosing to pursue the worthless things. They're trying to go after the anti-Assyrian coalition. And God says, therefore, I am like a moth to Ephraim and like decay to the house of Judah. Judah's not innocent in this whole mess. But think about that image here for a second. I'm like a moth to Ephraim. You guys ever like have your sweater sitting in the closet and all of the summertime you're like, can't wear your sweaters. And I don't know if you guys are as passionate about sweater life as I am, but I love wearing sweaters. You can't like do any better than a sweet cardigan, you know? But there is nothing worse than going to your closet knowing that you got that fresh cardigan ready to go, but a moth's gotten to it. And when you unfold it, it's got a big old hole in it. You guys know what I'm talking about? Is that just something somewhere that I've been before? Maybe you guys aren't that passionate about cardigans. I can understand that. But like God is saying, I'm like a moth to Ephraim. I'm like decay to the house of Judah, slowly creeping in and destroying the things of these people. When Ephraim saw this sickness and Judah saw this wound, it says, then Ephraim went to Assyria. When it didn't work for Israel to be in league with these people to destroy the Neo-Assyrians, then what they did was they backed off and Hosea, their king, began to pay tribute again. He began to, to try to win the good graces of this empire, this, this world power, by paying them off. And the text says, when Ephraim saw this sickness and Judah saw this wound, neither one of them can do anything about the potential onslaught of the Assyrian empire. It says, then Ephraim it goes to Assyria and attempts to, to have this uh, alliance with them. And Ephraim sent for the great king, but he could not heal them, nor could he cure their wound. All of this text seems to be about these people and their zeal to create political alliances just to be okay without including God in the mix whatsoever. Now, this is a terrible tie, and this might border on a misapplication of the text. But for many of us in this moment, in our political and social climate, we may be leaning upon the hopes of politicians to do the work which is necessary. However, we have not included God in our petitions that justice would flow that mercy would rain down like an ever-moving stream, I believe is the words from the prophet. When Ephraim saw his sickness and Judah his wound, then Ephraim went to Assyria. They tried to win these good graces, but even this could not heal them nor cure their 
wound. God says, I am like a lion to Ephraim, like a young lion to the house of Judah. I am the one who tears the prey and goes forth. No one can snatch it from me. I'm going to leave so that I can return to my place until they pay for their deeds. And this is where we start to meet an image of God that we might not find favorable. God is removing himself from the people in order that they might turn to repentance. It says, I am leaving so that they, so I can return to my place until they pay for their deeds, until they seek me. In their distress, they will beg for favor. But the quote that we get here has nothing to do with them begging for favor. Instead, Elizabeth Ochtemeyer says, Hosea quotes the words of the Israelites in these verses as they gather for a public fast of repentance, but their arrogance is vividly portrayed. Why? Because they don't even address God. They're just talking to one another. Come on, let's return to the Lord. For it is he who has injured us and will heal us. He has struck us down, but he will bind us up. They're taking God's mercy for granted when they have done nothing. When they have put themselves in no sorts of situations to be a people of character, a people of love, a people of mercy. They're taking advantage of what God has given them in the past. They say, after two days, he will revive us. On the third day, he will raise us up. This is kind of standard prophetic language. I know that a lot of Christians in the room are very eager to hear a Jesus motif here. You know, maybe. Probably not. So that we may live before him, it says. Let's know, let's press on to know the Lord whose appearing is as certain as the dawn, who will come to us like the showers, like the spring rains that give drinks to the earth. We might hear this as as Israel turning a page and going in the right direction. However, some scholars seem to say that this is just Israel playing the game. And we see this clearly here towards the end where God says, what am I going to do with you guys? Your love, it just, it's like a morning cloud. It's like the dew that vanishes quickly. It's here and then it's gone. If you're in this space, it's great. But when you're out in that space, it's, it's, it's evaporated. It doesn't characterize or define who you are. He goes on to say what he has done. I've attacked them by the prophets. I have, I have told these people what will happen to them over and over. Even before Hosea, they know what this is all about. I've killed them by the words of my mouth and my judgment goes forth like a light. I desire chesed. I desire steadfast, faithful love, not sacrifice. This is a bombshell in the Old Testament because sacrifice is like the coup de grace of cultic life. Sacrifice is the thing that you do to show God how much you love him. But now God is flipping the script and saying, it's not about sacrifice. It's about faithful love, steadfast, faithful love, acts of commitment. I want to see your faithfulness on display, not just in the temple, but when you leave and you go out there, I want you to be people of justice and mercy and grace. And you're not. I desire chesed, not sacrifice. I desire the knowledge of God, the da'at Elohim. This doesn't mean I desire you to read all the nerdy books. I don't desire that you go and learn everything that there is to know about systematic theology. Please do not do that. I desire you to know everything that there is to know that the scholars have said. That is not what is being discussed here. I desire that you will acknowledge me. I desire that you will live in perpetual acknowledgement 
of your God. And I want you to do this instead of offering your entirely burned offerings. You see, Israel, you're so busy getting in cahoots with all these people to try to save your backside from the powers that be. You're so worried about TP3. You show up in the temple. You take advantage of what you think I'm going to dole out to you because you've gotten it in the past, but you really have no intent on being my people. You have no intent of showing your steadfast love. You have no intent of showing your acknowledgement of me. You just want the benefits of that. And when they don't show themselves to be quick enough, you will sign any sort of alliance that you can just to be okay. And it's here, I think, that we can start to move into the world of application. Putting the pieces together in this passage, um, and we're really close to, to being done here, so just stick with me. All of this nerdy stuff, this historical background stuff, this is informing how we see Hosea 5 and 6. This is informing the, the sermon that Hosea is preaching to his people This is informing the realities of their life when God is at work in their historical moment here and now. This is not just some pious moment where people are praying and and God is not connected to their real lives. They're going to the temple and they're walking outside and seeing the Assyrian army outside of their homes. God is on the move and real stuff is happening in their midst here and now, and Hosea is addressing that, and one of the things that Hosea seems to be addressing is the way that Israel has gone about their faith is a sham. They're expecting things from God that they're not actually going after to get. They're not living as a people of steadfast love and commitment. They're not living as people with acts of faithfulness. They're not living as people who acknowledge God. They're just wanting God to show up and to keep them safe and okay. Now, once we understand the context of this, we can move beyond the Jeff Sessions moment. We can begin then to apply it to our lives and to the lives of this community. And I'll be honest with you, usually when I do a sermon, I get to this slide and I just kind of check out because I, I find it difficult at times to apply this for all of us in a way that makes sense and that can inform how you live. But as we're sitting here in the room, I know as much as I am standing here that there are probably people that are playing the game in the midst of playing the game. It's fun to sing the songs. It's fun to pray the prayers. It's fun to go to the Bible studies. It's fun to play bingo. It's fun to like be in that world. But are we able to move beyond the routines into being a people characterized by mercy and grace and forgiveness? Are we able to move into being a people that provide an image, a tangible image of Jesus in the world? Are we a people that are able to move beyond our political pietism and begin to learn how to speak in moments that demand a voice? Are we a type of people that's able to engage the difficulties in the world, and not just on a national scale, but in our own immediate spheres of influence? Are we able to address those in a way that God wants us to address? Or are we just attempting to put ourselves in alliance with people so that we are safe 
and cared for and comfortable. The more I think about following Jesus, the more that it seems to me that there's a demand that we move outside of our comfort zones. And I don't mean that we end up on a, a small missions trip or what have you. I don't mean that we, you know, we're not a bubbly person, but we have to be a bubbly person for a minute. That's not what I mean. I mean that we move beyond our comfort zones of being comfortable and begin risking things for the people in our lives that need help. The people in our lives that might not be able to move in a direction that they should be moving or that they could be moving if certain things weren't happening to them. I know that's super vague. I'm, I apologize for that. But perhaps if we were able to initiate difficult conversations, to initiate difficult relationships, perhaps if we were able to integrate our faith with real life, that God could use us in ways where it wouldn't just be about our worship, but it would be about our acts of commitment and love that work in concert with our worship. God is not in this text attempting to do away with the sacrificial system. He's wanting their worship to be in line with the lives that they live. My hope for us, and I think when we strip it all down, this is always my hope, not just for all of you, but for myself as well, that we live in a way that is consistent, that we live in a way that demonstrates how we love Jesus, not just in this space, but when we leave and when we go and when we interact with the people around us that need Christ, that need to see a different image, that need us to begin to move and begin to risk and begin to live that out in a way that is tangible for them wherever they are. It might be good that that's super vague. Because wherever you guys are sitting, you have relationships with people that I know full well need you to begin to move towards them in a way of intentionality, in a way that demonstrates the commitment that we have to Christ our King. And it's my hope that we begin to do that together, that we begin to do that as individuals, that that is the thing that characterizes this group of people and not just TRP, but the church at large God knows we need it. Thanks again for listening. We invite you to join us in Salisbury for one of our weekly services on Sunday evenings at 5.30 p.m. Whatever your story, there's room for you here. Again, if you'd like more information, please visit our website at restoresby.org. See you next week.